Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series featuring talks for Middle East Forum staff, fellows, guests, and other distinguished members of the Middle East policy recommendation community. My name is Greg Roman, and I am the director of the Middle East Forum, and I'll be moderating today's presentation with former General Amir Avivi. Top-ranking officials of the Israeli Defense Forces in 2019 started to embrace the Israel Victory Project's ideas vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. The idea that the Palestinians will only acknowledge defeat once Israel pursues a policy of victory, only to regress recently to the old and familiar tune of appeasement. What brought about that change? What will it take for the Israeli Defense Forces to speak again about the value of victory? We'll have a 15-minute overview today with General Avivi, followed by 15 minutes of question and answers. But first, a little bit of background about our guest. General Avivi heads Habitachonisti in English, the Israeli Defense and Security Forum, an organization that promotes that country's national security. He has 30 years of military, counterterrorism, and other national defense experience. With a bachelor's degree from Bar Ilan University, a master's from Haifa University, and a master's in business administration from Ono Academic College. I'm glad that you were able to join us today. Uh, former thank General Avivi, thank, thank you for joining us. Now, if you could just give us one minute on your security background beyond the resume and what you're doing in today's post-Army career in terms of promoting the ideas that you write about. Well, as you said, Greg, I served for 30 years in the Army. I was a combat engineer. I started as a simple soldier and became a company commander, battalion commander. I was a battalion commander in Operation Defensive Shield in Judea and Samaria. So I got the chance to really deal uh, with Palestinian terrorism. Uh, I also fought in Lebanon and in Gaza. Uh, after being a battalion commander, I became aide-de-camp of the Chief of General Staff of uh, uh, Lieutenant General Bogi Elon. There I had the chance to really see things on the national level, uh, cabinet meetings, working with the Ministry of Defense in a very complex uh, period of time, uh, just before the disengagement plan. And later on, I commanded the Egyptian border and I was the deputy division commander of Gaza, which uh, of course we'll talk about uh, today. Well, I felt that um, there is a need in Israel and overall in the Jewish nation for an organization of uh, military and security experts that will deal with one really major question, what will ensure Israel's survival and uh, that Israel will thrive for generations to come. It's amazing that a nation that has been expelled twice from its land is not answering, answering this basic question. What is needed for us to thrive, to, to, to exist in this uh, tough neighborhood? And this is what we're dealing with. So I like to apply the, yeah. At the was, top priority. I was gonna hope that you might be able to divide the conversations that you had when you were working with the general staff and when you were a senior ranking officer versus that of when you were a Magad, a, a battalion commander at the uh, major and lieutenant colonel level. Was there a difference in the way you spoke about obtaining your operational objectives in the field versus when you were deciding on the strategy behind those operations in the Kiryah and Israel's Ministry of Defense? Well, obviously there is a difference between tactics and between uh, the level which deals with, with strategy 
and uh, with what with what the government wants. So when you talk tactics, our officers and soldiers are the bravest you can find. They always want to win. They want to engage. They want to uh, manage to to keep uh, Israel safe and keep uh, all our uh, civilians and towns uh, safe. This is what bothers a company commander or a battalion commander. We want to we want to make sure uh, that we, are, we, are, we can uh, achieve our missions and, and win every single encounter. When you arrive to the general staff, it's not that the general staff doesn't want to win. It's, it's that, first of all, uh, the army does what uh, the, the government instructs to do. Uh, there are considerations like uh, the international community, uh, international law. Uh, things tend to become more complex uh, when you are a general. Um, but the basic spirit is, is still there. We were, all the generals in Israel were fierce fighters and fought for Israel uh, as young, uh, young officers. So they understand what it means and, and they do wanna keep Israel safe. So when the general staff is asked to present recommendations to the political echelon, the security cabinet, is there political considerations that goes into the general staff's formulation of those plans expecting what the security cabinet might ask of them, or do they come with a plan that they think will guarantee victory? And then sometimes it's sort of pared down with some sentiments. It's 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 brought to a, a finer distillation to take into consideration political objectives as well. Well, Greg, it's an interesting question. I think that uh, in the past, before the Yom Kippur War and the first Lebanon War, the army basically felt as the leader of the nation. It was much more proactive in the way they were pushing uh, ideas. And sometimes they shaped reality many times. Uh, in the beginning of the nation, the, the defense establishment defense shaped the reality of Israel. Um, I think that after the Yom Kippur War and after uh, the, the first Lebanon War, became a tendency to say, okay, we are professionals, we are an army, there, there is the decision makers in the government, we'll give them options and they will choose a, a very, you know, very professional way of looking at things, but not very proactive. I mean, the, the military is not trying to push its own agendas aggressively. It's uh, saying, okay, there are several uh, options. We are ready for any option. And uh, you, uh, the government decide what, what you wanna do. And it's a bit different talking about the culture of this uh, establishment uh, looking decades ago. And I think that if we were to argue under Moshe alone, who had certain political ambitions. He acted as a professional when he was the chief of staff, but when he left, he went into the political arena. There's a cooling off period there. But let's focus on the current general staff. Aviv Kohavi, he comes in to the Kiryah, to Israel's Pentagon, on the first day of his job, and he makes a speech where he says, victory is the value of this army. And he adopts a five-year plan called Momentum or Tnufa which adopts this value of victory. He, he says he's going to go from the platoon commander's course all the way up to the general staff and try to reinstill this idea of victory amongst all of Israel's officers. 
What was different before Kohavi became chief of staff? And why did he ask or, or align his values of chief of staff with the speech that he made? Well, first of all, it's important to say that the value of victory is embedded in the IDF book of values, and it's the top value always. I mean, this is what an army is about. It's about victory. The, the question is, um, what is victory? And this is really the question. And, and this said, uh, and the, on the tactic level, it's very simple. You engage the enemy, and in this engagement, the enemy needs to be killed or captured, and you need to win. That's straightforward. It's very simple on the tactical level. Uh, on the national level, it's very different. Uh, if I look at uh, uh, Netanyahu's way of thinking, for example, for many years, uh, his concept of, uh, of winning was maintaining quiet as long as possible um, to enable the economy to flourish, uh, taking in account that if the economy is flourishing, uh, you, you have also uh, enough uh, budget to build a strong army. And if we have a strong economy and strong high tech and strong army, we'll also have good international relations. And actually, if you look at the decade that Netanyahu was prime minister, it pretty much worked the way he planned. And this is why he managed to sign peace agreements with Arab countries. It's peaceful strength. I mean, they felt that Israel is strong economically, militarily, internationally. They signed peace agreements. But his decision to pursue this strategy had a price. And the price was that he didn't deal with many problems that grew over time, like the issues of sovereignty in the Negev and the Galil and the mixed cities, like uh, Hamas and what's going on in Gaza and the way Hamas has grown. So now we are in a situation where all these things that were not really uh, taken care of in a thorough way, now we need to deal with it. And we cannot continue pursuing the same strategy of buying time, of, of uh, you know, having a, a more quiet time. We need to change strategy. And therefore we need to define again, what is win on the national level, not on the tactical level. On the tactical level, it's simple. In your personal opinion, what does a win against Hamas look like and how do we get there? Well, basically winning against uh, Hamas uh, means we need to destroy their capabilities. And to destroy ca their capabilities means we need to conquer Gaza. Now, I'm not saying that this doesn't have a price. Uh, there is a reason why uh, the government uh, was, was not really into the idea of uh, conquering uh, Gaza. Um, but uh, what is happening now is that because the strength of Hamas, this is not only about Gaza, uh, this is affecting also what is happening in Israel. Basically, you have elements in the Israeli Arab society who are trying to build like little Gazas inside Israel. You have uh, Hamas getting stronger also in, uh, in uh, Judea and Samaria within the Palestinian Authority. So this is becoming much bigger than just the issue of Hamas in Gaza. 
And there is no real way to destroy these capabilities without, uh, without uh, engaging and fighting and, uh, and destroying this uh, organization in uh, Gaza militarily. Not, not the ideology, but, but the capabilities. And if you don't do that, if you choose not to go into Gaza and you want deterrence, the only deterrence you can have is if you target the, the leadership. And this, the IDF hasn't done for a very long time because the, the only deterrence, they are only afraid about their lives, not about their operatives or weapons or so on. And so either you conquer everything or you deal with the leadership. Now, what about the West Bank? What do you deal with in Judea and Samaria to affect change with Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas? So with my organization that uh, today, you know, we're fairly young organization, only a year and a half, but we have more than 2,000 officers in the, the organization, actually 2,500. It's growing very, very fast. There is a huge traction, and this means, and this shows you that most of the officers in Israel are patriotic, they are proud Jews and proud Zionists, and they want to win, and they, they care about the country. And this is why many of them are joining IDSF, a Bitcoinistim. And we have a very, very different view of the Palestinian Authority. In our eyes, the Palestinian Authority is an enemy. And I'm worried much more about this kind of enemy, the one that uh, moves around in, with a tie, but is doing things that are undermine Israel's security and even endanger us existentially. It's more dangerous than an organization than Hamas, that what you see is what you get. You understand that the Hamas is an enemy. That the, the Palestinian Authority is much, much more dangerous. And undermine, undermining us on the international arena, they're paying hundreds of millions of dollars a year to terrorists and terrorist families. They're inciting in schools and they're no partner for anything. And also at the end of the day, their own society hate them. They hate them. Abu Mazen, the reason he didn't go to elections is because nobody supports him anymore. So we think it's time to, to understand that they're an enemy and they, they need to go. And, and there is not, it's not that there is no other choices. Within the Palestinian society, you have local leadership, the heads of the Hamulas. I, I met one of them today, by the way, the Hamula of Hebron. They are fed up with the Palestinian Authority. They want to take control. They, they want to have good relationship with Israel. And we, we are publishing this week a, a very big paper about the way Palestinian Authority institutionally funds terror. And we're going to present it in Washington in two weeks. And we're, we're going to talk about it all the time until there is a realization that this uh, entity needs to go. And we need to be aware Give us a policy recommendation, if, if you don't mind giving us a little preview of the report of one thing that the US government can do to help Israel win its war against Palestinian rejectionism? Well, first of all, what is happening today, unlike the previous administration, is doesn't matter what they do, they're never blamed for anything. They're not accountable for anything. And the first thing you need to do with them is, is make sure that they are accountable for anything they do. So for example, there is the Taylor Force Act, you need to implement it. Don't give them money. If they are funding terror, 
Don't fund them. Not, not America, not Israel, and also not Europe. If they are funding terror, you sanction. I mean, they feel they can do anything and get away with it. And, and we also need to, to bring the, the, the understanding that we can manage without them. I mean, we did. I can tell you that in uh, Operation Defensive Shield, the, the Palestinian Authority collapsed and we worked with the local uh, leadership of the cities for a long time. And we decided to bring back the, the Palestinian Authority. We could have continued to work with the local leadership without taking any responsibility of the everyday civil life of the Palestinians. There are solutions for that. So and today, some entities, even in Israel, they treat them like they're kind of messiah or something like that. We uh, are going to close this portion of the interview and get to our audience questions. So first, we have a question from Mr. David Levine. Is there any evidence that the woke mindset, the, the belief in political correctness, concerned with hurting people's identities and feelings, has now invaded the Israeli military as it has in recent months started pervading itself in the US military? Well, I, I don't see it in the Israeli military yet as bad as it's happening at the moment in the, in the States, but, but I sell the, I, I'll say this. It, it does, it's starting to affect the young generation in Israel. And this is why we are mobilizing our thousands of officers into the high schools and into the pre-army programs to talk about that, to educate about our values, because we say something very simple. There is no national security without nationalism, without patriotism, without connection of uh, our roots, our Jewish roots and, and our Zionistic uh, values. And, and these values are very different from the progressive agendas that we are seeing pushing forward today in the Western society, and especially in the state. We have an anonymous question that was just submitted. If the Israeli Defense Forces can destroy Hamas militarily, what would it have to do to stop the advancement of Islamist ideology, which inevitably spawns more and more recruits? Well, the, the, the army can deal with the physics. They can destroy enemies and they can destroy installations and so on. They, they can't destroy an ideology. And we have seen that by the way, not only talking about the IDF. I mean, look at, at what happened in, in, in Iraq and, and in, in Afghanistan. And we had the US, a much bigger army conquering Iraq conquering Afghanistan. And the ideology not, not only didn't change, it got even worse. When I was a young uh, a Lieutenant Colonel, I was invited uh, to the States to talk about how to deal with improvised explosive devices because at the time uh, the US Army was having a, a lot of people killed from IEDs in, in Iraq. And, and I, I was sitting there and listening to the the, the American officers they, from the intelligence talking about what's going in Iraq. And they kept saying, we need to win the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. You know, we'll pay them money, we'll build installations, we'll do education. And when I, I was a young officer, and when I, when, when, I, when I spoke, 
I told them this, you need to understand that in the Iraqis eyes, you are no more than crusaders contaminating the land of the Islam by your mere presence there. The moment you will turn your back, they will stab you. So some of the guys that were actually in combat agreed with me and some of the intelligence officers of the NSA said, thank you very much, sir, but we respectfully disagree with you. So I gave them my number and I said, okay, call me in five years and we'll see what happens. And what happened is ISIS. And what happened is now what's going on in Afghanistan. There is a basic lack of understanding of this culture. And it's very different from Western culture. What can we do? Elaborating on your idea about conquering Gaza, we have a question here from uh, another anonymous attendee. And they ask, if we do go into Gaza and take it, then what's the next step? We had Gaza and it was an economic drain. What would your plan be to get out once the IDF went in? Okay, so it's easy to talk about it because we did it in, in Judea and Samaria. I, I want to remind the audience that also in Judea and Samaria, we retreated from the main cities. And then very, very fast, they build very strong uh, terrorist uh, capabilities, which resulted with more than a thousand Israelis killed in, in, in major cities, in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, in Akula. They sent suicide bombers um, and attacked all over Israel. So because it was in the main cities and in the center, Israel reconquered the Palestinian cities in Judea and Samaria. It took us, a month, and then it took us two, three years to stabilize the situation. But then we handed back um, the cities to the Palestinians to run them, but we kept full freedom of operation, which means that any terrorist or any terrorist cell that is starting to be built in a city, we apprehend them the very same day. The IDF arrests every day between 10 to 30, 40 terrorists in, in, in uh, Judea and Samaria, and it's every day. Now to conduct this arrest, you need only a platoon or a company, that's it. To conduct an arrest in Gaza today, you need a wall. There is no arrest, you cannot arrest them. It's a wall. So they're building up these capabilities endlessly. So if we conquer, Gaza destroy Hamas capabilities, then we'll find the local leaders to run the cities and so on. We are not going to do it by ourselves, but we'll keep freedom of operation. We won't let them build these capabilities once again. Now, when you look at the Judea and Samaria, Palestinians in Judea and Samaria are flourishing. They're working in Israel. They're working in industrial areas in, in, in Judea and Samaria. The, the economy is working. They're having a good life. The Gazans are in a terrible, terrible situation, much worse than before. So it's, it's only going to improve their own life, not only Israeli security. They are under a terror organization that is exploiting them. So it will help them again, but it will also restore Israel's deterrence in the Middle East. And this is important because Gaza is be, being built by the Iranians for the day that we'll have to attack Iran. This is why they're building 
Hezbollah and Gaza. So we need to take Gaza out of the equation. We don't so let's need fo let's, let's focus on that. Let's focus on that regional question that you just brought up. There's another question here from Sandra Bellastrino, who asks, isn't the real problem, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase this, I'm gonna say, isn't the second part of Hamas's problem the support that it gets from Qatar, Turkey, and Iran? Well, of course, Hamas uh, is getting stronger because they get money and know-how. The main, the main uh, uh, country that is supporting them is Iran. Their know-how is Iranian, the money is Iranian, um, the technology is Iranian. Uh, Iran is building a terror uh, armies, I would say, around Israel. That they did it with Hezbollah. Hezbollah has more than 100,000 rockets pointed at Israel. They're doing it with Hamas and Jihad in Gaza, but they're also doing it in Syria. And then, and, and I don't know if you know that, but Iran is trying to infiltrate into Jordan. Yeah. They have a lot of forces uh, 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 trying, trying to affect also economically Jordan. So we might find ourselves in the future with Iran on the Jordanian border as well. Uh, so this is a big problem, and, and Iranians are the source of everything. And at a certain point, we'll have to deal with that. So we have Gaza, we have the international component, but in terms of the current Israeli government's policy towards Gaza, there was a plan that Foreign Minister Yair Lapid put forward on September 13th, about a month ago, where he said that in return for Israeli infrastructure and economic assistance, to those who live in Gaza, he would expect Hamas to disarm. Uh, this idea of calm for calm. What's your opinion on the current Israeli government's, more specifically the foreign minister's plan for Gaza? I think nobody took him seriously. It's a ridiculous plan. And um, and, and I want I want to I, I want to explain this. Look. There is the tendency to look uh, at the, what happened at the end of the Second World War when, when uh, they started building up again Germany and, and Japan. And this, this gave to the world a, a sense that, you know, you can use economic uh, uh, capabilities to build a new, a new reality. But what they forget is that the, when they started the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, it was after two uh, atomic bombs on Japan and after Germany was flat, Berlin, everything, nothing remained, you know, they, they destroyed Germany completely. So if you do to Gaza what you did to Germany, sure, it will work. I mean, uh, you know, destroy all the capabilities, destroy Hamas, and then rebuild them, then you are rebuilding ships. You cannot rebuild lions. Um, so any notion of us giving economic assistance and them leaving their ideology is, is a complete misunderstanding of reality. Now, the leadership of Hamas, they are billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires, they have endless amount of money and look at their ideology. They are leading the people to, to this terror uh, 
path. So it's not about the money, they have money. Now it's not the poor people that are inciting for terror, it's the leaders and the leaders are billionaires. And, and I think there is the lack of uh, understanding that people can be very, very ideological and very rich. It's not that only poor people are ideological. General Vivi, we only have a minute left, so I'll make this question short. And I uh, would think that it would probably be a yes or no answer, maybe with a little bit of explanation. But would you support a preemptive strike against Gaza without any rockets being launched? The idea that Israel would just one day wake up and say enough is enough and it's time to invade? Anything we do seriously in Gaza must be preemptive. We need to initiate it and not respond to a Gazan attack when they are ready. I mean, when you attack, you have to be clever, you know, and you have to surprise. You cannot surprise if you are just uh, retaliating. It needs to be preemptive and it needs to be very fast and decisive and, and, and we can do it. I mean, the IDF is ready. It's, it's a matter of decision. The dilemma is, do we focus on preparing for Iran and deal with Iran and then deal with Gaza or the other way around. First deal with Gaza and, and, and then uh, with Iran. And it's not a straightforward answer. And uh, we had a big discussion about that this week and we didn't manage all to agree that on one scenario. It's, it's complicated. Brigadier General Amir Avivi in the reserves, CEO of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, otherwise known as Habita Honistim, partner of the Israel Victory Project and the Middle East Forum. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And now I'm pleased uh, to also give a little bit of a preview for on Wednesday. We've come to the close of our webinar, and I want to thank again Brigadier General Vivi for joining us. Thank you. For our viewers and listeners, this coming Wednesday, at 3 p.m. Eastern, we will have an update on Israel on the civilian side, not just the military side like we are today, from Ashley Perry, our Knesset liaison. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope you all have a wonderful day. This is Greg Roman, Director of the Middle East Forum. Enjoy the rest of your time this afternoon.